The Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mystery of life. This podcast is brought to you by the Numinous School, my online intuition development course for people who want their self-awareness to serve a greater good. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, and today I'm very excited to welcome Nava Smolish to the show. She's a literature professor who writes a blog called Dating Tips for the Feminist Man under the pen name Nora Samaran. Last year, she wrote an article that went viral, it changed my life, and it transformed my marriage and just how I see the world. It's called The Opposite of Rape Culture is Nurturance Culture. So just so we have a basic agreement of what's meant by rape culture, you could Google it and it'll bring up a very simple definition. It's a society whose prevailing social attitudes have the effect of normalizing or trivializing sexual assault and abuse. Wikipedia will go a little further and get a little bit more detailed. And it says that behaviors commonly associated with rape culture include victim blaming, slut shaming, sexual objectification, trivializing rape, denial of widespread rape, and refusing to acknowledge the harm caused by some forms of sexual violence. Now, Nava's article emerged from a time of personal crisis for her. Nava has a cognitive disability, and three years ago, she lost the ability to read. She ultimately took medical leave from work and took to her bed for over a year. But then the article came through her and it got over 300,000 views in a week. Thank heaven, because it's such an important piece of work. The article does a beautiful job of summarizing attachment theory as it applies to adult relationships, but then stepping back to look at the larger implications within a patriarchal culture. So if you're new to attachment theory, I want to give you a, a, just a very brief overview. So first of all, I mean, you should go and read Nava's article, but if you haven't yet, I'm gonna give you this, this, um, yeah, this little synopsis. Also, I wrote an article called Portrait of a Marriage, Yes, It's Mine. And um, I, I go through each style and how they feel um, physiologically in your body as well and kind of how you manage them. But for the purposes of understanding what we're talking about in this conversation, let me just very briefly provide a quick overview. There are four attachment styles, secure, anxious, avoidant, and disorganized. Now about half the population has a secure attachment style. Roughly a quarter of us have an avoidant style most of the remainder express an anxious style, and there's about three or five percent or so that have a disorganized style. It's really important to know that attachment style is relative to the relationship you're in, meaning you can be anxious with your partner, but avoidant with your mom. It's also, I find, very hopeful to know that your attachment style can change over time meaning if you work at it, you can become more secure. And also, every attachment style is perfectly normal. It's a natural and human adaptation. There is no attachment style that is a character flaw. 
So ideally, we'd all be secure attachers. But when babies come into the world and are met with an environment that's lacking or deficient, or if as adults in our adult relationships, we experience some kind of attachment rupture, we can develop these maladaptive patterns, these styles. And we adapt in order to survive, right? In order either to maintain the relationship or to prevent further rupture or further trauma. So let me just describe each style a little bit. Secure attachers feel comfortable and solid in partnership. So they're not afraid of intimacy or mutuality and being responsive to their partner's needs isn't a struggle. <laughs> like it comes pretty easily and they can set healthy boundaries and they don't take their partner's reactions personally. On the other hand, we have anxious attachers. Um, I, I'm kind of labeling as like anxious attachers, but that's sort of shorthand that it's really a style. So the anxious attachment style, those folks who, who are expressing that, they crave a deep and vulnerable intimacy, like emerging with their partner. And they can be preoccupied or even consumed by their relationship. And they often worry about whether their partner even really loves them. They prefer a really high contact relationship. So it has to have regular physical, written, verbal, or just like any kind of tangible gestures of connection and reassurance. And they spend a lot of time feeling that their relationship could fail at any minute. So they worry about it a lot. Uh, avoidant attachers, <clears throat> yes, that's me, crave independence and freedom. And they can be dismissive and withholding in relationships. And, and consciously or unconsciously, they erect barriers to closeness with their partners. So they find high contact relationships super draining and a real threat to their autonomy. Um, because they don't equate sex with intimacy, they kind of have these mixed signals that can be confusing for anxious attachers. Um, I also just want to state for the record that I've, I've done the quizzes, man. I have evolved significantly. I'm a much more secure attacher now. Anyhow, I digress. Okay, with the disorganized style, you can feel like you're running both anxious and avoidant tendencies simultaneously, and that's because that's precisely what's happening from a psychobiological standpoint. So I'd like to encourage you to read either Nava's article or mine to get a really strong foundational understanding of attachment styles, but then go deeper and read some of the books that we cite in our footnotes in each of our articles. Um, one other small thing, Nava mentions the term gaslighting in this conversation, and I just want to quickly define that. It means to psychologically manipulate someone into questioning their own sanity. You just make somebody feel crazy by actually doing things that are crazy making. Um, so there are more references in this episode, so I've put a ton of links in the show notes. But now, with just that little bit of contextual information, I think you'll really enjoy this conversation. I reached Nava while she was on vacation, sitting outside under a tree in New York State. Nava, I want to thank you so much for writing the article, The Opposite of Rape Culture is Nurturance Culture. It had such a profound impact uh, on, on me and on my husband and on our marriage. And, you know, we've been sitting with it for, I don't know, I guess over a year now. And, uh, and 
there's so much richness that we couldn't possibly do it justice in this <laughs> this one episode. But you know, I as soon as I read it, I thought I need to speak with her more. I hmm. see connections between rape culture and white supremacy and, and, mm. and just so many other things that didn't even make it into the article. And then mm -hmm. we had to do a little bit of a dance for quite a while and sort of get to know <laughs> each other in a mediated way. And I was like, this is mm -hmm. culture. So I'm just going <laughs> to kind of keep attuning here. Can you yeah. tell me a little bit about um, what was going on for you when you wrote that article and how you're living in it being out there in the world right now? Huh. <laughs> um, I want to say thank you so much for having me. This is the first podcast I've done. Um, and I really appreciate the genuineness of the way you've come to it. Um, and I'm really honored to be here. It's kind of exciting. I'm feeling really happy, actually, <laughs> about this. Um, and there are kids running around me who I just laughed a little loud. And one of them laughed back at me, not knowing why I'm behind this tree. So. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Um, so how did the podcast come to be? Um, well, I think of it, I'm, one of the things that has influenced me for quite a few years is the Icarus Project um, model. And um, I've been thinking a lot about dangerous gifts, and I think this definitely <laughs> comes out of that, uh, that kind of, um, it, this definitely was a, a, some, a gift that emerged in the middle of a difficult time. Um, I'm a literature professor and I had had, uh, I have a cognitive disability and I stopped being able to read about two and a half years ago. Um, oh. yeah. And I went on medical leave and I was really, uh, privileged and lucky to have the ability to go on medical leave for the first time in my life. I was able to like not work <laughs> and I did that and I was like, Oh God, can I do this? And I did. And, um, I couldn't read for at all. Like I couldn't read a sentence um, for about six months. I couldn't really speak. I couldn't really speak or make put coherent thoughts together. Wow. Um, and I went back home to my best friends from high school's house who happened to have a spare room and I kind of crawled into their spare room bed and didn't come out for a year. Wow. <laughs> and I didn't talk to anybody except my sister and my best friends from high school for about a year. Wow. Yeah. It was a really quiet time. And right when I was just, you know, had been teaching for about three years and was post PhD and was supposed to be, you know, in some kind of career building phase that I didn't really understand because I'm not really from a background that like no one in my family really understands that stuff. So I, I didn't really know what was supposed to happen after you graduate from PhD. <laughs> <laughs> now I've learned a little more, but it was a very confusing time. And um, in that time of like this deep, deep, deep stillness where just everything had stopped, um, there was a point of, well, there, it was an abyss time, like a lot of people, a lot of people have these experiences of talking about the abyss when you kind of look over the edge and you're not so sure you still want to be here. Mm -hmm. Once I, once I opened up and started talking about it, it turns out lots of people know what that's like mm -hmm. that moment. I had a long string of those moments over about a year and a half. And, um, and I was working with some very talented body workers and they brought me back many times and they continue to heal me and things have gotten so much better now. I mean, I'm back at work and everything's in some ways better than before, more whole than before. Mm. But uh, yeah, there was a moment at the very bottom of that time of isolation and abyss. I used to say dark time and I'm really <laughs> aware of the implications of that language and I don't use that language anymore. Mm. Um, when I just surrendered, one of my body workers was yelling at me on the phone. I'm standing on a street 
outside. I'd come in for an appointment and the buses were late and there was a snowstorm and I missed the appointment. It's just one of those shit days. Yeah. And you're like, I give up. I give up. I don't want to be here anymore. And I'm crying. And he's like, you're fighting it. Something is trying to get through you and you're fighting it. You need to stop fighting. You need to surrender. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I don't know what you mean. And he's like, just surrender and I'll help you. And I was like, fine. <laughs> I've tried everything else. <laughs> And I just sort of like, he was like, if you're going to fall, let yourself fall and you'll find out it's not as bad as you thought. And I didn't know what that meant, but I had really good guidance and I did. And I had been putting together this funny piece that I didn't really understand, trying to figure out something that was happening to me bit by bit and puzzling it out and like reaching and reaching. And it was about three days after that, maybe within a week after that moment that I hit like post <laughs> and it wow. went oh, and I was very surprised wow. I'd had a little bit of something like that happen before because that whole blog came up as a originally three years ago it was a joke it was like I was frustrated about something and I wrote a blog post and I just wrote it really quickly and I didn't even think twice about it and that one had gone a little viral like like a lot of lefties read it <laughs> and it had been a fun experience but it was just silliness and so I used the same name just because it was out there mm-hmm. um the name's kind of random it was just my letters of my name jumbled up with some vowels stuck in the middle right. <laughs> like it was really I'd never thought twice about it if I had known I was going to be stuck with that pen name I might have actually picked one <laughs> I literally took like n s m and like shuffled them and put some a's in there <laughs> yeah, I was I like oh it sounds great. It really runs off the tongue. I guess it just, when you stop thinking, things come through you. Mm -hmm. So I posted it and it got, I don't know, 300,000 views in a week. Wow. Something like that. It was pretty intense and it went all over the world and people literally in every country are reading it and writing me mail. (laughs) And I didn't expect that. It pinches a nerve, not just hits a nerve. Like it's Um, like, Ooh, Ooh. you know it's that recognition and and it's a painful recognition you know and not just personally but also collectively so like yeah I can feel why people in you know all over the world oh man you know there was a beautiful line right very early in it where you say violence is nurturance turned backwards yeah and the whole thing just kind of goes from there you're just like oh my god I'm just like peeling myself Oh, just like oh trying to get all the stuff I've swallowed and just unswallow it yeah uh, I'd be really curious to hear what it what it was like for you what it hit what it touched for you because everybody's yeah yeah as an avoidant woman oh yeah it was it was painful to see how I had internalized patriarchy and misogyny as a way to survive Oh, okay. It that just makes, makes so, so much, much sense. sense right? Yeah. And that makes and so much sense. And that makes sense with the writing that you're doing too and the all of the work that you've been doing that I've been wanting and following too. Yeah. It makes so much sense. I have a very anxiously attached male who is trying to mm. um be to earn secure attachment. And I, mm. you know, I'm thinking, of course, I want that, but actually everything that I am. <laughs> <laughs> like radioactive so how you know here I am critiquing patriarchy while yeah. I'm um completely uh you know um emasculating uh, shaming you know mm, that's what it was it came, you know what it came out of a realization that our culture has been shaming men and this was a realization that 
I had, and it's not, I do not hold to or come from the like MRA, Iron John, bullshit, not my thing, but that like, I love, there are a lot of men that I love in my life. I have a brother who's like someone that I've had a complicated relationship with. I've dated a lot of complicated men (laughs) and a lot of my friends are male and I have a lot of these conversations with men and I've been, I've always been kind of a tomboy all my life and felt more comfortable in some ways with men than with women and like listening and feeling through and realizing how much shame they live in. Mm -hmm. And I want change because I mean, to be honest, I was dating someone who was psychologically abusing me when I wrote at the time that that thinking grew, but I didn't understand that yet. People around me were telling me that. They were like, this isn't okay. This isn't okay. And I was like, no, no, it's okay. It wasn't. (laughs) The way that you protect, you're like, no, you just don't know him like I do. But like, I was working through some things and I was, I was, I mean, I think really, really get into, I, I deeply empathic person, I think. And I was feeling underneath things that he didn't even know were there mm-hmm. that were like inherent shame. And then when, I do think that when you feel shame, you push and hurt people that try to get close to you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I do think so. I think I've been in that role. Like I've also, I've also been in an avoidant role. Before. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and that brings up something very interesting about um, disorganized attachment, which yeah. <laughs> you know, like I, I just spent, you know, uh, I, you know, four or five days in a training specifically devoted to understanding disorganized attachment. Because it's not written about. Now I yeah. get it. It's super yeah. unpredictable. It's like learning. Yeah, you do all the things. You do yeah. all the things. I push, I pull. (laughs) In a span of seconds, it's all happening at once. I don't know how this is going to go, right? Yeah. Yeah. So in, in, I'm just going to keep coming back to your article because I just feel like this is really important (laughs) cultural discourse, right? We could spend a lot of time on this. And one of the quotes you have that I think really landed for my husband and is the Mm. one that he's been really trying to work with as a way Mm. to dismantle patriarchy is Mm. you say the men I know who are exceptionally nurturing lovers, fathers, coworkers, close friends to their friends have almost no outlets through which to learn or share this hard won skill with other men. Yeah. So that, that piece about, you know, how, um, like, when we have a culture, when we have rape culture, yeah. where codes of masculinity make it just yeah. risky yeah. to share or learn these things, then yeah. what happens is women get blamed for that unresolved male shame, like yeah. ergo misogyny, right? Yeah. And so I, I found that super fascinating how you talked about you know attachment needs are like really healthy and normal and they're not female. Yeah. <laughs> rape culture, when attachment styles land in particularly gendered ways, yeah. women are, are, are blamed and um, yeah. men are shamed, basically. I mean, it's funny because those insights, now that you're reading them back to me, those two <laughs> insights came from two men that I know. Mm-hmm. The um, men cannot talk to each other about, about this came from my friend Chris Lyon, who's also the friend who told me the word gaslighting. Oh, and um, years ago, he's a, we dated briefly and decided we were just friends. And we had, a, we had a conflict. He came back. We sat down. We worked it out. Our friendship has been beautiful ever since. Nice. <laughs> um, and he, I, wrote, I was on the phone with him, and he had, read, he had read something. I was talking it over with him, and I was trying to get him to see something about himself, and he wasn't seeing it. And later, he was like, he read the piece later, and he was like, oh, God, I think it's true. <laughs> but he mirrored that. He said, 
I was like, why this man in my life and that man in my life get together. They've known each other for 20 years and they talk politics and they never ever are vulnerable with each other. And both of them are really vulnerable with me. Mm. Why don't they ever talk to each other? And he's like, it's like lizard brain stuff. We're like, we think we would, that if you ever reveal it, we'd kill each other. So you, yeah. you can't. And I put that in and I was like, he corrected me. I didn't ha- I didn't understand that. Mm. And the insight about shame that, um, that's what it is. All these men in my life were like opening up to me. And I was like, <laughs> you need somebody other than me. Cause you're actually <laughs> hurting me when you do this. Like not that the opening up, the opening up is great. It's the lack of change that was hurting me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, you keep hurting people in the same ways and then wanting to process it, but not actually changing. <laughs> like, yes, yes. And I was like, you, you got to do some of this work with someone other than me. Cause I'm the person you're hurting. <laughs> like, Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, that, that line that said, um, women get blamed for unprocessed male shame that's my abusive ex who told me that about himself he said I realized that that I was shaming you for my shame and I was like "Uh (laughs) (laughs) uh-huh and it went into the piece at the time and then yeah so it's all insights that men have been sharing but not with each other (laughs) like <laughs> yes. and so then there's a grief right like I mourn that and I see yes. my husband mourning that and like really trying hard to um attune to other men and like kind of go outwards you know yeah. like so he's not always dumping back into the relationship it's super hard because we're still very much like working and processing yeah. what does but that's the that's where the beauty is like. right it it is it's also where it yeah. becomes even more excruciating because once yes. you go and then you keep fucking up because you yeah. have, you <laughs> that actually these are not character flaws these become physiological states right like yes wired to that it's plastic we can change it but it it does it's hard right it takes commitment yes and that commitment is the beauty to me in all of these things in the larger political struggles and in the interpersonal ones which are not separate from me the commitment is the beauty yes it really is i i also want to i want to kind of um so it felt I could feel relief as we were just talking about those, like a, a couple of insights there. And I want to <laughs> even more relief because sometimes being able to map the struggle is, mm-hmm. is really clarifying. Another mm-hmm. couple of things you say that are um, particularly gendered ways mm. that, that when attachment styles show up in that way, they, they yeah. support supporting rape culture. One is like, um, you know, men who then are seeking like power over and dominance because yeah. their normal intimacy needs are distorted. And yeah. so then it, and when they're distorted and denied it, they come out in distorted ways. Right. So, you know, you, yeah. you mentioned little things like the, the cat call on the street is, is, you know, when it's dismissed, it's, yeah. they call it up with like, fine, be that way, bitch. Yeah. Like, fuck you, bitch. Like, yeah. Like who hasn't lived through that? Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, so it's the distortion that patriarchy yeah. on normal needs for, for attachment. So not understanding how to like appreciate something other than objectify. Partly. And it's partly, it's partly also the larger cultural fabric and the way that it disguises things like, and this is what I've learned about this in the last year. And and since that writing that so much more has come clear, but like, I mean, if I could use a metaphor that, um, you know how uh, an amplification, you know how with lasers, with light, any kind of wave, sound or light, you ever learn the physics of light or color or sound? Um, when, you amp- when you have two waves that are running exactly together, they make, twi- they, they amplify, even okay. though they're just two of the same. So the way a laser works, from what I've learned in physics of color years ago, is that the same light 
gets bounced back and forth many, 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 many thousands of times. And it mm. amplifies because simply by um, the same wavelength mm. repeating, it mm-hmm. creates a much more powerful light. I gotcha, yeah. And when they go opposite to each other, they cancel each other out, which is why with sound, a friend of mine who's a musician, actually the friend I'm here with, who's a musician years ago taught me, if you're standing in the bath in the shower, a lot of people like to sing in the shower. Yeah. And the reason is because when your voice hits the walls, the waves um, bounce back and they amplify, but they only amplify at certain frequencies. And you can actually hear it change. If you go low to high and hum notes consistently up, even if you keep the same volume, certain waves will be hitting the wall and bouncing back at a frequency that cancels. And other ones, because of their length, will hit the wall and bounce back at a frequency that amplifies, even though you're doing the exact same thing. Wow. So if you go low to high, you'll hear your voice get quieter, louder, quieter, louder as it moves through the frequencies because of the length of the waves. So culturally, we are culturally conditioned to perceive certain things and disperceive other things, even though they are every bit as much happening. We're culturally conditioned to perceive the emotions, needs, and feelings of people who are in positions of dominance. And we're culturally conditioned to simply not notice the needs and feelings of people that are positioned as less dominant we just don't notice as soon as you described it i was like getting this visualization was like i i can (laughs) feel in my body that expansive (laughs) feeling where my my thoughts are going way beyond my head yes (laughs) that's it like too many thoughts yeah and (laughs) the way that you brought that in like it's like seeing the matrix like yes. (laughs) Yes. yes it feels like that because So take the shift that's happened in the last couple of years over, I don't know, decades of work and organizing and and labor and and deaths, and this is not my struggle, so I want to honor it, but I feel like, just want to be clear, I'm speaking to something that I've learned from that's not mine, but the change that's happened in the last few years with trans identities, trans kids being more and more spaces where kids can be trans in schools, where there are bathrooms that are not divided by sex where there's understanding that gender and sex are different like the massive transformation where now I have a friend who works in Texas in some like who has two trans people on their team and they get their pronouns right and they like and they have no political reason they have no they've not gone out seeking this the culture has finally turned a corner finally right for people that aren't actively working and actively thinking of themselves as politicized people when it's just like average good folks who do what they consider good it takes that cultural shift for them right. to change right it's not a will it's not like they're just like oh i'm gonna i, I i'm now gonna actively try to perceive the yeah most people aren't comfortable doing no, that it's just most people happens. wait until the, everybody else changes and then they change and then they forget that they ever did anything different right oh. they're like it's, it's all i've always been like this of course we can use he for you or they yes. or like right yeah yeah um and so that until that shift happens it's culturally normal to ignore, not notice, not even to dehumanize people that are not are positioned as subordinate in our culture, right? So and that's, that's true. Interesting because that doesn't feel like just patriarchy and misogyny. No. There's, that's, no. that's like what happens when you have culture. That's right. what Well, and it's, it's all the, I mean, black feminist thinkers have been talking about this for decades. I mean, yeah. you know, Bell Hooks writes about it and um, so many people have already described this. And what I find interesting is, let's say for me as a white person, that even I read a lot of that stuff, but I didn't understand it. Yes. So there's um, 
Kimberly Crenshaw has this great YouTube uh, TED, TED talk on YouTube that's yes. um, the urgency of intersectionality. Yes. And she is a UCLA law professor who coined the term, but it was based on a lot of older work, right, by black women going back into slavery. And she points out that if we're missing a frame for understanding something, then we can hear it a dozen times, but it doesn't, it doesn't connect to anything we can understand. So it yes. doesn't mean anything. Even if it's someone else's lived experience and they're like, this is how this feels. I'm scared. We'll be like, that sounds theoretical. Like, <laughs> I, don't, I don't understand, you know, because we don't have a, our cognitive map for getting it isn't there. There's nothing for it to plug into, even if it's so evident. Right, And so a lot of the cultural work is shifting cognitive maps. It's shifting what people can even think, right? And that's where the popular culture and the cultural work comes in. And it's all these intersecting forms of oppression. But what's so amazing and powerful and fucked up for me is that it operates in the left. It operates in organizing communities. Like, we're not free of it in any part of our culture. Mm -hmm. And so when you bring it down to, let's say, something like gendered violence, we're culturally conditioned in all of our spaces to just empathize with cis men and particularly cis white men to the and just not notice the feelings of everybody else we're just mm. we just don't notice they're just not considered that important and we do that to ourselves yeah and we do that to each other yeah and and all the you know and and i i mean the only word i can think of right now is apologist which which is kind yes. of it's, it's you know i, I it, I, I, I kind of recoil from that word because again, it makes it seem like this is a personal choice. Like, and I exactly I, no, and it's conditioning. We don't, the only choice we have is where we put our attention, right? So right. the choice is do you follow blindly along and go, well, this is what looks, this is my personal opinion on what looks right to me, or do you stop and go, those things that I think are my thoughts. I'm not separate from this culture. So I have to stop and question, where did they come from? Mm -hmm. Why are they happening? Like yeah. I noticed after learning last year about anti-black racism, for instance, which a lot of folks have learned about all at once who didn't yeah. know about it before. Like, I think I've, I got a real kick to the head last year, understanding how, how much this had been erased in my own education. Yeah. And in that process of realizing, you know, 10 years of learning about anti-racism without learning this, um, yeah. Right, which is crazy. Like it's been erased. Yeah. So, yeah. and I didn't have the personal lived experience to understand it without learning it. Um, as I had that realization, I went back into how I would teach things, and I noticed my own conditioning to be like, Shh, "Black women don't matter. Don't notice that. Don't talk about that. People won't want to know about that." And I was like, "What the fuck? Right? Yeah. <laughs> how long has that been there? Right? Yeah, exactly. Like, how long has the <laughs> chamber in my mind been closed off? Just this little noise that's like, "Don't notice that. Don't notice yeah. that. Don't imagine living under a big don't notice that cloud. Yeah. How fucked up that would feel. Like how fucked up that would feel. And I guess I feel something akin to that around the experiences that I've had." as a you know as a cis woman yes. dating cis men like i've had For these sure. fucked up experiences and people just don't notice well and we're conditioned not to notice like this there's okay so it's it's not too many steps between like the um okay I have a couple of thoughts. They're <laughs> like bigger than my brain right now. So many thoughts. Go yeah. for it. Okay. I love it. So I was, I was very curious and I want to come back to this. Let's, let's, I'm going to put some, I'm going to menu some things here. Great. So the first thing is you had this awareness, um, you know, 10 years of learning anti-black racism without learning it. And then something happens that's a bit, I call them arresting emotional experiences. And often okay. it happens. Learning like, anti-racism without learning about anti-black racism. Yeah. Yeah. And still yeah. you have the, oh, exactly. Thank you. And yeah. still you have this arresting emotional experience. And I have found it often does come with shame. 
Um, now, I wasn't feeling shame. I was feeling angry. Okay. <laughs> I was like, who the fuck? How did I manage to do a couple of degrees on this and nobody made me learn that? What the fuck? Right. <laughs> I was pissed off. There's an actual physiological experience happening when something mm. breaks through. And that also feels yeah. like comes back to there the was, attachment. Yeah. That it's like, oh, yes. suddenly I'm able to hold gaze with this part of myself or something yeah. happens where yeah. there's an attunement and it kind of, yeah. tetris, something just kind of Tetris is into place in your yeah. body and you go, oh, fuck. And then <laughs> yeah, like then it can be anger or shame or grief or rage or whatever. There is, was right? grief. Yeah, there was grief uh, and anger. And fear, fear of, you know, the fear of doing it wrong, the fear you're going to fuck it up, paralysis about doing anything, which is why like when I was, I was learning all this stuff really quickly and confused about it because you get confused when you're learning something new. Totally. When you're trying to decondition yourself from like a lifetime of conditioning, there's some confusion. Yeah. Because you have to catch the thing that it's like, it's like clapping with one hand, you know, you have to catch your mind at work and you're in your mind. Yeah. (laughs) We don't do that very easily. Yes. Um, And there was... um, there was just a kind of bang, 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 click, click, click awareness of many, many, many instances over many years when I'd missed things Mm -hmm. and could retroactively understand. I went back over and even read things that I'd read originally and I understood them finally. Like they made sense finally when they hadn't ever meant anything before. Totally. I remember reading being like, I don't understand, but I, uh, okay. And now I was like, I get it in my head and I'm, no, I didn't even, there wasn't anything to get. I was missing I was missing the schema completely. Okay, I get you. Because I, I, I collapsed all different kinds of racisms together, and they're actually, they work really differently. Oh, okay, I understand. I, I get what you're saying. My, my, so it, my experience yeah. that's parallel to that is that I get it on a cognitive level, but I'm also processing emotion about it on a cognitive level. Like, oh, that must be frustrating uh, instead of kind of getting into it. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I do. think I'm believing you, except I'm not actually having your any emotion. I'm not empathizing. Yeah. That happens too. That's a, for me, a parallel process for me when this hit, this hit with a huge wave because it was connected to specific people I love and people that I'd maybe failed. Not, not shame, grief. Yes. Not shame. Oh, okay. I think I have a different inheritance around shame than some folks. I think there's like a, I have a really deep seated shame around existing. Like I'm not sure I'm supposed to be alive, which seems to have swallowed all the shame for my actions. (laughs) (laughs) Like very fundamental. Am I allowed to be on this earth? Shame, it's a which I think. Foregone conclusion. <laughs> yeah, I don't have that much oppressor shame. I have a lot of oppressed shame. Like my dad's a Holocaust survivor, so the intergenerational stuff is a little different. Yeah, uh, it's a different flavor than a lot of people. What people talk about, I don't know. I appreciate that you're um, really looking with like the quality of your looking is nuanced so that you can say there are many different kinds of you know racism there's many there's there's well that's not me that's just stuff I finally 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 heard people have been talking about for decades (laughs) that's me really slow (laughs) I I get it though and but I I mean that that for people who are white who are settlers yeah yeah that the conditions make it like it, it we just don't see right yeah, yeah it invisibilizes so it, yeah it can and so the very first thing you see is kind of the general fuzzy kind yeah. of perspective and then things yeah. slowly slowly you can start to distinguish 
different, right? And nuance, which I think is not, I don't want to say it's like an advanced skill. It's just part of evolving and maturing um, as a human. We're just super slow about this. And putting your foot in it a bunch of times too. (laughs) Being willing to be like, oh, okay, I fucked that up. All right, onward. (laughs) Yeah, and that's developing resiliency around fucking up, like, and and uncomfortable feelings, right? That's, that's, it's, it's not supposed to be easy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Although that connects in, I think, to so many other things. But you have you have a menu. Oh my God, there's six yeah, other things the there. Yeah, exactly. So the, the next part of the menu is that there's there's also this sense of like conflation of things. I, I'm kind of going back yeah. to the gendered piece here. Yeah. But I think it it then again, it's not too many steps to the white supremacy thing. Is yeah. you, you conflate things because you can't distinguish, because you can't um, untangle things that are yes. firing all at once. Well, because we're taught to think in very simplistic ways. Yes. That, that isn't something that's, that is taught. And so we have to unlearn the yeah. conflations of sex and love or the confusion. Yeah. Be about um, like when there's an over orientation towards the physical, it can be confusing when yes. the emotional kind of side yes. excited. And if it, it it's like the confused mind, yeah. like, no, right? The confused yeah. mind, like, fuck, I don't know what this is, and it's yeah. like, you know yeah. to just yeah. miss that. So that yes, or to freeze, or to have any number of. Yeah. A fear responses when we don't understand something. What was that article that went around that said that we treat unfamiliar ideas like enemies that are attacking us? Yes. <laughs> just shut down. You're like, no. Yeah. <laughs> Men, when it when we're like, I need you to be more vulnerable with me, and they're like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> you know, right? Like, yeah. You don't understand masculinity, and you, know, you know, like, yeah. no, thank yeah. you, right? <laughs> <laughs> like the this preference we have for rugged individualism that dismisses people, both, I would say women and men who, who do seek attachment, we dismiss them as like needy or weak or crazy. Right. Right. So that's the place where the cultural intersects with the psychological. Uh And I think that's what the piece did. That's what I'm proud of in the piece. That was just me. That was saying, okay, I'm not a psychologist, but a couple friends, I'm good at synthesizing books. <laughs> I don't want to do that. A couple friends gave me a couple books. I was like, wow, this explains everything that I've wondered about forever. Uh-huh. Synthesized them, but then connected them into the cultural phenomenon. I think that's a neat thing that the article did. Yes. But I'm, it's a small thing, but I'm proud of it. <laughs> I think it be. It's fun. And the thing I think there where the cultural comes in is that the larger culture, coming back to that metaphor of the um, waves canceling each other out or amplifying the larger culture in north america and in much of western culture believes that we are all distinct atomized individuals that we are physiologically distinct separate atomized individuals i grew up in a clan family (laughs) that survived the war you know people died my my dad lost two brothers lost a lot of family and the way they got through on the run my dad was born in, a, in like a camp and then was grew up in a refugee camp and whatever the way they survived was the opposite of that they're like we survived because we're all together we're all one and that's got its issues mm-hmm. and they were like you know i think eastern european values probably came into play or whatever there's probably more collectivism mm-hmm. in some parts but I think that if you grew up in that kind of environment where, you know, you don't assume you're individuals because you're not, it's idiotic. You all breathe, you all drink, you all like, it's an illusion. And so for me, what we need to understand is that we live, and you know, lots of people have spoken about this, 
I just, I, I feel it really viscerally, I guess, because of my upbringing. But we live because we are interdependent. We wouldn't live if we weren't connected. And so what we need to do is develop, like it's, I, I tell my sister this a lot, <laughs> like we live in the same house, so we have to learn how to knock. Mm. Like in the West, you know, and this is something I noticed in um, also uh, an article by Alexis Shotwell that I really liked that talked about how we, we talk a lot, somehow the language about boundaries is that a boundary is a wall that you build and you say no, and it's hard to say no, and people have to respect your no, and I'm like, I think actually, and uh, there's a writer, Tad Hazumi, who started writing about this specifically about, white, about whiteness. Do you know him? Yeah. Uh, yeah he's actually a study buddy of mine oh no kidding yeah that's good I don't know him well we just he got in touch because of the article and he's doing some of his own work that happens to parallel it a little but we have a lot of very different ideas too Uh our ideas about racism are actually really different which is funny but I'm like really interested in his work um but he said it too that you know a boundary isn't um isn't a no it's a movement together and so healthy boundaries are the ability to feel what you're feeling, feel what I'm feeling, and meet both. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's then like basic differentiation. From, yes, know, like, exactly. Differentiation is not disconnection. Yes, yes, yes. And we mix that up in the West because our larger culture says it's good to be isolated and atomized and individual and be able to do it on your own. Bootstrapping, mythology, all of that shit. We have all been conditioned into that. I have too. My family a little less so because, like, like I said, like also – just working class like not having a lot and so you just share like you just share instinctively when you don't have enough because mm-hmm. if you don't you die <laughs> like, you know yeah. well, and <laughs> a beautiful um I, I do want to help move people a bit to like some relief in their bodies right now because they're like oh this is yeah. you, you end the article on this on this exact notion of community care and cultural transformation that's it that's it right? There's these four things that I love. I'm going to give them to you. And I'd love you to say, which is the one that you're kind of most working on? Which one do you think is the most um, emergent or needed right now? So four examples. Yeah. is (laughs) One of the, the acts is to protect while you listen and believe. Yeah. So you talk about that in terms yeah. of gender, but I, I can see the parallel with racism. Yeah. You also talk about learning self-love as a way yeah. to eradicate the shame or, or to resolve the shame, feel that. The yeah. third thing is you say, do the work with other men, which I yeah. can imagine being with other white people if we're talking yeah. about them. But in an accountable way and to yeah. continue to support and protect oppressed people, not just to connect with each other yeah, you're <laughs> yeah it's, not, it's, yeah. it's been misinterpreted that way yeah exactly it's not good to be yeah. here guys with, with yeah. yeah no no and then the yeah. last thing you say is fund and lend prestige to masculine nurturance you know like those you know um, celebrate um, but but actually culturally give it a place of purchase um i hate to um, be capitalist um but you know <laughs> it's, it's in everything Using a tool to dismantle the master's house might be one thing. <laughs> but th- those are sort of four of many different approaches, but four that kind of stood out to me. And I'm wondering if anything in there, or maybe something different, feels urgent for you right now. I think something a little off to the side of those, of a few of those. And it's, um, maybe it's the do the work with other men, but not but while in an accountable relationship because maybe it's that but it's it's off to the side a little I think in this moment right now like when 
there's so much happening. There's, you know, white supremacist people rallying and killing people. And it's, we're at a fever peak of, of uh, things that have been um, there all the time. And I, I've heard um, something I loved, a quote by Adrienne Marie Brown, that things are not getting worse. They're getting uncovered. They're getting revealed. Like we're pulling back the yeah. veil. Yeah. I think that's clearly what's happening. And so for me, let's say as someone who's got white skin privilege and walks in the world as a white person, that means that there's things I'm only learning now that have been there the whole time and I couldn't perceive them. Mm-hmm. And I think for, for people who are cis men, that, that is happening as well. There are things that have been happening and we've been saying it and saying it and saying it and they weren't hearing it, not out of maliciousness, but out of inability. Mm-hmm. And there's that moment of being willing and it's hard work and you have to be willing to do it. I think in all of those things, the what I really feel the need for and I hear a lot of people needing is just to abide together. It's just to connect like mm-hmm. with one another. <laughs> and that needs good boundaries. That needs the ability to listen to the other and the self at the same time. Mm-hmm. That needs the ability to come back again and again, like you're doing in your marriage. <laughs> mm-hmm. And like I'm doing with several close friends of mine, we come back we come back and we grow and we grow and we grow and we grow and we change and we get better and we get better. That needs that ability to return to the site of harm and repair mm-hmm. anywhere that it is. Right. And mm-hmm. that is what allows people to fight white supremacy, not only in its worst, most overt forms, but, in its everyday institutional forms because it lets us say hey this thing just happened and it's fucked up but i love you mm-hmm. come here and let's talk about it <laughs> yeah, yeah. right right now if we have this culture of disposability and we have this culture where people think that they're atomized individuals where every relationship is a choice i'm sorry no every relationship is not a choice that's a crazy idea <laughs> yes. we yes. don't get to choose who we know mm-hmm. that idea is breaking west is a breaking our culture <laughs> yes, yes we do get to choose whether we're intimate or not in certain ways like you, no one ever is owed touch or sex necessarily right although i think if someone i think if someone is um in a state like if someone falls over and breaks their leg they're owed care like care is owed. yes yes but but there are, there are forms of intimacy that we don't choose we we don't choose that we know that the baker whose bakery we go into and the like the day-to-day life is a form mm-hmm. of intimacy Mm-hmm. And we can't pick the people we're intimate with, so we need to have ways to get along. But mm-hmm. that doesn't mean condoning, allowing, or continuing the erasure of massive systemic structural violence that's killing people every day, that's destroying people in big and small ways every day. It means being able to do all of these complex things all at the same time. Yeah, yeah. To and notice and- the harm, interrupt the harm, not be bystanders, be able to stand up and say, hey, I see that and I'm not going to let it happen. I'm not going to blame the victim. I'm not going to be a bystander. I'm not going to let it go on just because I'm scared someone will. Because when we have this constant disposing and discarding of human beings for saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing, everyone's afraid they're going to be discarded and that comes back and becomes bystander culture. Right. It's, and it's it- so true. So I want to, yeah. I want to, like, I love that there's like an arousing peak happening here. Like, <laughs> yeah, this is fun. It. I feel it. It's good. It was very satisfying. So here's what I would, from this place of sort of empowerment in this moment, I would love to know, um, and this isn't to like crash your peak, but just to- No, this is great. Kind of a it's a nice, we can roll down again. People. Yeah. Is like, how do you, Nava, personally- cope with grief and rage about these large-scale collective dilemmas? 
<laughs> on a good day or a bad day? <laughs> oh, please tell us both. Start with the- <laughs> no, no, no. Y'all know the bad days. So I'll yeah, tell you a good day. Okay. Everybody's us- bad days are the same, I think. <laughs> yeah. Hello, a bit. And I brought a bagged lunch. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Bad days are horizontal. Good days. Um, okay. So there have been fewer of those. This this last I mean this last year has been hard uh, for mm-hmm. everybody. Yeah. The last three years have been hard for me personally in ways that I think are coming. I'm coming out the other side now, and there's mm-hmm. growth there. But um, good days, tapping into something deeper underneath that I think a lot of people feel. I think a lot of people feel that this is a time of transition. Western culture is crumbling. All the bad shit is breaking apart, mm-hmm. and we can feel that. And that's the chaos and waves at the surface. And underneath, I don't know if you've, you know, if you felt this, a lot of people talk about this and seem to feel it. And when you're tapped into it, you can feel who else is. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I can smell my own, right? I guess. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then there's this deeper source underneath that is calm, that has always known what to do, that is, has always been okay. Uh, and that source doesn't, um, it doesn't fear death. So it doesn't, you know, that, that's a part of you that exists before you're born and exists after you die. So it's connected to something much, much, much deeper that has the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why for me, abiding together, being able to be together is where the strength comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, that's it. It's the ability to not dispose of, not discard, face the hard things come back together, go, okay, we've hurt each other, we've fucked up, but there are fucking fascists like walking the streets, so we have to have each other's backs. Mm-hmm. And even before that, all of these issues were woven through all of our communities, and so we have to have each other's backs, and that means being willing to stick it out. And that, that pleasure, so in the dispossessed, and maybe we could even, I don't know if we're at time, we could wrap up on this. In the, in the dispossessed, the main character, Shevek, he speaks of the, how they have nothing, they have empty hands, and in order to come, it's this anarchist planet, um, that's the moon of a, of a, they call it archist planet, <laughs> which is a bit like our planet in the eighties, um, that in order to be free, in order to be human, you have to come with empty hands and all they have is one another. And the beauty of the faces of the people that are, that are his people that he loves, the beauty of the, of the Adonians, like the beauty of the people are where he finds his hope and where mm-hmm. he finds his ability to go on. Mm. and I'm definitely built that way like for me the pleasure in the company of the people that I care about is my strength Mm -hmm. and it means we're going to bump up against each other we're going to cross each other's boundaries we're going to fuck up we're going to hurt each other and we have to come back and work Mm -hmm. through it and then we can be strong because we know that we are together Mm-hmm. That's okay. where I get my strength. I don't know if that helps. But. It really does. And, and you know how I know is because I, I can feel it, right? Like okay. it's a yeah. somatic thing. Like, so I really yeah. appreciate you uh, abiding with me. I feel a real kinship. It's a, <laughs> I feel like my cheeks are sore because I've been smiling this whole time. Even though we're yeah, it's funny. About, People like, are walking by looking at me because I'm laughing onto yeah, this phone. Exactly. Ah, yeah. I, yeah. I, I, Thank you so so much to, to to hold nuance together that just fe- we're we're kind of dispersing the, the burden right it's because yes we're it together so thank yeah, you for and I, together. I oh such a pleasure and I really appreciate the way you ask questions it really brought everything out and then tied it all together it's quite a gift and I, I don't always have the ability to speak this easily so thank you for that. oh okay. well thank you really meaningful it's a pleasure to, have, to be here 
<laughs> so that's a lot to digest, eh? I, I, I do want to give this conversation some space and let you ponder it for a while. So there won't be a rubination in this episode, but um, Ruben and I have discussed it, and we are going to do an episode soon where we talk in depth about our marital journey and how we've struggled to earn secure attachment with each other, and also how we've um, recognized and coped with and sort of <laughs> railed against and resisted some of the cultural problems that Nava's talking about in her article that have crept into our marriage by way of patriarchy and internalizing misogyny and yada, yada, yada. For now, though, I'd really like to thank Nava once again for putting her words online and, and for sharing her thoughts with us here in this episode today. I enjoyed that conversation. To read her article, go to norasamaran.com, N-O-R-A-S-A-M-A-R-A-N.com. And as always, I like to thank my listeners from somewhere in the world. Today, I'd like to thank my listeners in the Netherlands. So wherever you are in the world, if you're feeling a bit hopeless about patriarchy and white supremacy and the state of the world right now, you know, the Dutch had a saying during the German occupation in World War II that I love, and it was this, hope is not necessary to proceed as long as we have some courage. And that makes me think of another quote by a great and beloved Canadian, Tommy Douglas, who said, Courage, my friends, it is not too late to build a better world. To read the article I wrote on attachment theory, you can search for it online at medium.com. It's called Portrait of a Marriage. Yes, it's mine. Or you can find it on my website, along with a number of articles I've written on attachment and healing attachment wounds, actually, at carmenspaniola.com. C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. Until next time, take care. <laughs> <laughs>